So we're going to look at Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, and we're going to stay there throughout our passage, this throughout our time this morning. But I do want to remind you of where Paul has been taking us and what Paul's point is up to this point in time. And he's going to progress in this all the way through Romans chapter 3. And that is that Paul's mission here is to bring everyone he's writing to under the sentence of God's righteous judgment against their sins. He's brought this already to the idolatrous individuals who are rejecting the presence and the knowledge of God in their lives. He's brought this to the pagan who is resisting God and refusing God and propelling themselves into increasing sinfulness in the last part of Romans chapter 1. In the first part of Romans chapter 2, he's turned his attention to, I believe, the moralizing Greeks who he as well is touching upon and he's bringing them under this sentence of God's righteous judgment and wrath against their sins. In the last part of Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, Paul is going to sweep into this net of condemnation the religious law-affirming Jew. And then in the first part of Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, he's going to lump them all together, and he's going to drive home this sentence of God's righteous judgment and wrath against sinful people. And he's doing this in order to convince them of their powerlessness to save themselves and deliver themselves from God's judgment. He's doing this in order that they might discover that there is no hope for themselves except through the gospel of Jesus Christ and their complete faith in Him. Now that's the context of the passages we've been considering and the text that we're going to be reading in just a moment, Romans 2, verses 12 through 16. At the end of verse 11... Paul has concluded that there is an indictment against the Roman Gentiles that he's been describing. Two different types. The first type that is just wantonly, in Romans chapter 1, wantonly just giving themselves to sin and sinful behaviors and manifesting obvious moral corruption and even promoting it in others as they resist, in a sense, the knowledge of God in their life because they want to pursue their unrighteousness. And even though there is this suspicion within them which the Spirit of God is witnessing to them that they're under God's judgment. They continue to do the very things that God is opposed to, and they're taking pleasure in those who do the same things. And so that's one group of Greeks that he's talking to. And then in chapter 2, he turns his attention to, you might say, the moralist, who is tisking the vulgarities and the moral laxity of those other pagans and who are promoting a noble life that all people should be living. And Paul shows that both of these categories of Gentiles are under God's judgment. And it's at this point in time, at the end of verse 11, that a chorus of information seems to be breaking in upon Paul. As if Paul is hearing the voice of individuals who are now protesting. And they're saying, well, wait a second here, Paul. They can't be under judgment because they're ignorant of the law of the Jews. They don't know what God's expectations and what God's demands and commands are. And so... I'm going to put up a defense for them in a sin. And that is that they should go free and that you cannot bring them under condemnation. And God is unjust to condemn them because, well, they're ignorant of the law. They're ignorant of the law. And that's where we're at in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Let me read it to you. Because here's Paul's answer. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, 
these although not having the law or a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel if you go and read the various commentators there's some confusion as to how to organize the thoughts that are expressed here some think that verse 12 and verse 16 are one complete sentence and verses 13 through 15 are a parenthetical thought that Paul is inserting and and actually in some of your translations you'll find that it's translated just that way Uh, parentheses are put there because they're trying to figure out the grammatical structure of the passage I rather think instead that what Paul is doing is that he's laying down a sequence of principles or ideas that are leading to one concluding thought they're setting up an argument that he's continuing to make and he'll continue to make this argument now as he goes on because he's going to press these very same ideas and truths against the religious Jew who boasts in the law and that he has the law but we should see that there's kind of progression or just a series of principles that are put together and what I want to do this morning and I think the easiest way to look at this passage then is just to look at it verse by verse and to kind of understand something of what Paul is saying in each one of these verses and then at the end of that we'll put together some principles that we can understand and we'll be able to do that fairly quickly so let's look at verse 12 and let's just go one verse at a time verse 12 for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law Paul you cannot blame these individuals you cannot say that God's judgment is against these individuals because we don't know what the law is and here is the first thing Paul says When he speaks of the law here, by the way, it's a reference to the moral laws that are outlined for us in the Old Testament and are encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. And there God sets down for the Jews how it is that he would have them live while they're enjoying and experiencing a covenant relation with him and before him. Paul says in this passage that God is going to judge everyone, but not on the basis of what they didn't know. He's going to judge everyone on the basis of what they did know, the things they did know. We're not going to go here, but if you went to Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, the Lord Jesus tells a parable, and in that parable, he basically says, to whom much is given, much will be required. That to those who know less, less is required of them. To those who know more, more is required of them. And in a sense, Paul is arguing and making that same argument. The person who knows less will be judged with less. The person who knows more will be judged by the more that they know. Each person will be judged righteously or fairly according to what they knew of right and wrong. That's Paul saying. Those who didn't know the Hebrew scriptures will be judged without those scriptures. And those who did know those scriptures will be judged by them. But here's the thing you need to note in what Paul is saying here. It will keep us understanding this passage correctly. The indication here is that all of them, as a result, are going to be brought under condemnation and judgment. doesn't matter whether if you didn't know the law, you'll be brought under the condemnation of individuals who lived their life by a different law or by a, a diluted information or knowledge. But by what knowledge you did know, you'll perish with that knowledge, it says. The person who knew the law and understood the law and continued to sin in the law, they will be judged and they will be brought under judgment by that law. So... When you're bringing a person to recognize the need of the gospel, you first have to bring them to 
the moral law. It may be that they don't know the Ten Commandments and they don't understand all the laws that God gave in the New Testament and that were repeated in the New Testament, but they know something of the truth. They have some knowledge of the truth and they must be brought under what it is they know to be right and wrong and the judgment that will come upon them as a result of that. They have to see that there is no escape from that judgment except in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the option for a better way of life from many different options. He's not a person who comes to us and he just provides for us meaning and value and peace and stability and purpose, although he brings those things with him. He's come to us to save us from the penalty of our sins and to bring us into a right relationship with the Holy God. That's his purpose. That's his design. I find that when I'm trying to lead a person to Jesus Christ and I want to bring the gospel to them, the first thing that takes place in trying to bring them before this moral law is they would resist the notion that they're sinners whatsoever. And then as you press it upon them a little bit, and they be, it's not that hard to win that argument with them, that debate with them. Once they begin to concede that, well, yeah, they're sinners, but they're not bad sinners. You know, what they've done are just the minor sins that are in their life. And then if you begin to help them understand the essence of sin and what that sin is and what the commands of God are, and you show it to more deeply, the, the next thing they will say is, even though they might acknowledge it, is, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't know that was God's will. I didn't know God's command. I didn't know what God designed for me. I was ignorant of those things. And this has happened on multiple occasions for me. But the Bible has an answer for that, and Paul's giving it to us. Well, the good news here is this. You're not going to be judged by what you didn't know. You're not going to be judged by what you, know, what you didn't know. Now, here's the bad news. You're going to be judged by what you did know. And so the important question is, what did you know? What do you know? What are the things that you know that you know you haven't done that you should have done? What are the things you know that you know you shouldn't have done that you've done? What are they? That's the area in which we begin to address them and talk to them. God's not going to judge you according to your ignorance. He's going to judge you according to your knowledge. Let's go to this next passage of Scripture. Verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And so here in this passage, this can be confusing for people, but Paul is just stating a truth. He's just bringing forward a truth. What he doesn't do in this passage is reveal the active application of the truth, how that truth is played out in the life of men. He's just declaring a truth here. He's later going to show us how that truth is played out in the life of human beings in Romans chapter 3. And there he's going to reveal that no one has faithfully kept the law. No one has. You want to be just before God, basically saying, keep the law perfectly. You want to be just before God, just keep the law that you know, that you're knowledgeable of perfectly. If you want to be just before God to the Jew, just keep all of the law that God has given you perfectly. Be a keeper of the law. Not just someone who's hearing it. And, but then Paul will reveal in Romans chapter 3 that no one's done that. You'll see that other authors in the New Testament have said the same type of thing. Here's what James says in James chapter 2, verse 10. He says this, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. Whoever will keep all the law but stumble in one point is guilty of all. I'll give you a couple of illustrations now of when I was a little boy. This came to my mind the other day. I, I was a little boy and I was 
in the bathtub, love Saturday night baths. Those were always great, right? And so I had all my toys in there, and I had some little sharp toys that were like tanks, that were underwater tanks, believe it or not. And we were having our little battle in there, and I had taken one of them because there was an explosion during the middle of the battle, and one of them flew into the glass divider that was along the bathtub, and it hit that glass divider, and it broke it. And the moment it broke it, something shocking happened. It didn't just break in that one spot. The whole panel shattered, and shards of glass came pouring in to the bathtub upon that 10-year-old little boy. When you break the law, it doesn't matter where you break it. When you break the law, the, the shards of the broken law, all of it become shattered, and it all comes following down upon you just like that. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Take your Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. This is not where Paul gets to in verse 13, but this is what he's setting up here. He's giving us this statement in verse 13, but he's setting up the things that he's going to say in Romans chapter 3. He's going to set up the same thing, basically, that he says here in Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in All things which are written in the book of the law to do them, to keep them. All of them. Cursed if you don't keep all of them. That's the underpinning argument here. Give you another illustration from when I was a young boy. I went with my father as he was sharing the gospel with a neighbor. We were sitting in the neighbor's front yard in a picnic table. And I was listening to my dad as he was engaging this man in the gospel. And my dad said to him, Moss... He said, there are two ways for you to get to heaven. Now, that got my attention. Two ways to get to heaven. I know, that, I know the song we sang in church. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? I know that Jesus is the only way. He's the door, and that is wrong here. And what do I, should I speak up? Should I correct him? But dad went on with this thought. Dad said, Moss, if you keep the commandments of God perfectly throughout your whole life, and you never deviate and never fall short, you will climb the rope to heaven. And and Moss, that would be plan A. So Moss, let me ask you, how are you doing? Moss's response was, well, plan A is out. What's plan B, right? So, well, Moss, then the only hope for you or for any person is plan B because the Bible says all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And Dad opened the Bible and showed it to him and Moss, what you need to understand is that Jesus came and lived out all the requirements of plan B. He is the only one who has kept perfectly and completely the law of God. And then he went to the cross, and on the cross, he bore all the righteous punishment of the law against himself. Jesus has completed the law in two ways, Moss. He's completed the law in that he's fulfilled all of its requirements in obedience and full obedience to it. And he's also fulfilled the law and that he received upon himself all the curse of those who break it. And he did that for us. He did that for us. So, and here's plan B. So if we'll put our faith completely and totally in him, we can be forgiven of all of our sins knowing that he's paid the price And so that then in him he might put upon us by faith all of his goodness and all of his righteousness so that we can stand in the presence of a righteous God covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But Moss, what you have to do is you have to now decide that you can't save yourself. 
You have to be certain that plan A is completely out of the factors for you. You have to put all of your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Well, now, that's where Paul is going in this statement in verse 13. That's the groundwork, the preliminary statement is leading to that conclusion that Paul is going to take us to in Romans chapter 3. I want you to note another thing here, though. Paul, while he's saying this, speaks of being, do you see this in verse 13? He speaks of being just or righteous in the sight of God. When we share the gospel with individuals, oftentimes we tend to communicate the gospel in a way that helps the individual get rid of the burden of their guilt and the regrets that they have in their life and the stains they have in their life, promising to them this better self for themselves so that they can be made right by God through Jesus Christ. But this little phrase, just in the sight of God, shows us what is the greatest matter of concern when we speak of being made right or being justified. And the greatest matter of concern is that all of this is for God's sake. It's God's great concern. It's God's great desire. God wants to make us sinful individuals right in his sight so that he can receive us unto himself. The whole design of being made right or being cleansed of our sin is not so that you can just get on your way. Not so that you can have a better day. So that a righteous God who loves you can receive you unto himself. So a God whose eyes are such that he cannot even look upon sin can look upon us and delight in us as his creatures and he's made and receive us to himself. And therefore God is given his son to come and bear our sins, to pay the price for our sins, and his son to come and live out the righteousness we fail to do, in order that he might wash us and cleanse us and cover us with his righteousness, so that he might receive us unto himself. Justification is not first for your sake. It's for his sake. It's for his desire and for his delight. It's that God might fulfill this loving desire in you. Now let's go to verse 24. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now Paul is getting to that argument that was made that, well, you've got to let these people free and you can't say God is going to judge them because they're ignorant. Paul is basically saying the reason that ignorance is not a defense for people is because people are not as ignorant as you think. They're just not as ignorant as you think. They might not know the law of God as given in the scriptures of the Ten Commandments, but God has created human beings as moral beings. And God has, as a part of our humanity, put into our minds a common knowledge of basic right and wrong. Every society of man proves this point. You can go into any society and you'll find that they have understandings and an idea of honesty. They have an understanding of what it is that they're not supposed to steal or take other people's possessions. They have an understanding of the sin of idolatry. They have ideas of modesty. They have prohibitions against and they have a prejudice against those who are arrogant and prideful. And anyhow, you can look at it and you'll find that this is reflected in every human society. Now listen, it's not perfect. They don't break out their laws in the way in which they engage one another with a perfect and clear way in every aspect of the natural law, but it's there. Latent within human nature and with human beings, God has scribed this moral sense and this moral understanding. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33, there's a prophecy that's given of the new covenant that God will one day accomplish in his people. And this is what it says. 
Speaking of that day when God will bring a new covenant to his people, it says, but this is the covenant God says that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law on their minds, I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And this promise is a promise that is fulfilled in us when we're born again and receive new life. And that moment, God comes and lives with us, and he writes deeply into our very being and into the core of our natures, his design and his will and his purposes and his laws. But that's not, this new covenant is not what Paul is referring to in verse 14. He's not referring to somehow that these elements of the new covenant are already at play and happening in the lives of people in the farthest regions of the world and in the darkest communities that have never heard of the law of God or never read their Bibles and don't know anything of the commands that God gave on Mount Sinai. That's not what's being discussed here. What instead Paul is saying is basically in every place there is, and among all people, there is a work of the law. Do you see it says there? It says the work of the law is in them. And the work of the law is to restrain us with the knowledge of right and wrong. It's to draw some lines in the sand so that we don't go too far in how we live our lives. There's got to be some rules. Without those rules, there's no restraint and we'll just catapult into complete chaos. And it's the work of the law is to also compel us into certain duties by some basic knowledge of right and wrong. When I was in Bible college, there was a rule. They got a lot more rules at Bible college than you have at universities, secular universities. When I was in Bible college, there was a rule in the men's lounge that we were not to have pillow fights. Now, the problem was that all of the couches were upholstered with loose pillows. They didn't want us to have pillow fights. They should have put couches where all the pillows were sewn into the couches, but they weren't. They were loose. And so what would happen periodically was a pillow fight. And uh, I ended up getting caught by the dean of men on one occasion in which I was in one of those brawls. I was brought before the dean of men. He was appealing to me as if I had broken one of the Ten Commandments. And for whatever reason, I wasn't yielding to him. I wasn't penitent enough for having got in a pillow fight. I, I said to him, listen, I know I broke the rules. Just tell me what I have to do and I'll do it. I'll, I'll, you know, I got caught. I got in a pillow fight. Well, what do you think we have these rules for? And I said, well, you have to set a standard. I don't know that I've sinned is what I said to him, which got his eyebrows perking up. He didn't like the fact that I suggested I hadn't sinned by getting in a pillow fight. I said, well, I think you have the rule not to get in a pillow fight because if you didn't draw the line there, we would have been throwing the couches at one another. You know, you just drew a line to keep us from going into complete chaos. Well, he wasn't satisfied with that. For the next two days, I went around the campus scrubbing floors as a result. So I had to pay for my crime. But in essence, that's what the moral law is. God has given a moral law to individuals in order to restrain the worst chaotic expressions of their life. God has given a moral law to individuals so that their societies have some level of order so that we can function and that our societies and our lives don't collapse in around us. But that is not the same as what's being discussed in Jeremiah 31, 33, where we have this picture of the new covenant What we do have is we have a restraining knowledge of right and wrong. We just have the natural law. We have the natural law. We have an orderly direction for ourselves and the right things that we, to some extent, coded within our own natures. But what we don't have is a deep love for that law. What we don't have is the abiding power within us to keep that law. And that's what you have when you're born again. The Spirit of God brings to us, through the life of Jesus Christ, 
a love and exaltation in the law of God. And the Spirit of God brings to us, through the life of Jesus Christ, a power and enabling to live out that law. And that's what Jeremiah is promising there. But you see here, basically, what we're just saying here is Paul is saying that we, we have a basic understanding of right and wrong. Societies know this. Just a quick example. A Russian atheist on one occasion was asked, how was it that order was established in their communist atheist country? How, how did you maintain order in your country when you reject the idea of God and absolute standards? And the, what were the social laws that were written to, to maintain your civil life? And the answer that the atheist gave was, well, as far as I can tell, they imposed upon us certain laws from the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you got to go somewhere. You know it's in you. It's coded in you. And so... It's not a foreign idea. Here's the idea. The Ten Commandments, the moral laws that we even read in our Bibles, are not foreign ideas to human nature. They actually comport with, they're consistent with, how we were created by God as moral beings. And so you can't claim ignorance. Something of that is already coded within you. Verse 15. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves the thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Here Paul is adding an additional idea here. Not only is this moral code embedded in our natures, but God has also given to people an inner voice of conscience that interprets and applies that code. You have a conscience. Now, do you know your conscience is not perfect? You might have thought that was the case and then you got married. Your wife began to refine your conscience in certain areas of your life. Your conscience is not perfect. There are things that you have done wrong that you don't know you've done wrong. You're not pricked in your conscience by this. And there are things that you shouldn't do that you do do, and your conscience doesn't tell you not to do it. And the reason is, is that our, the Bible tells us, our consciences can become seared. The nerve endings of our response to right and wrong that is within us becomes calloused over. But listen, here's what I would say to you. Although... You're not always aware of the things that you shouldn't do and the things that you should do. And just because your conscience isn't telling you to do something doesn't mean that you should do it. Just because your conscience isn't kicking in and says that's not the right thing to do doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do because your conscience is silent. That will get you in trouble. But here's something that will help you. When your conscience does tell you not to do something, you better listen to your conscience. When it does say don't do it, pay attention. And the problem is that everybody has offended their own consciences. They've gone against their own consciences. It's a witness that will and does shout to us. Now here's what Paul's going to say. It's shouting to you now and it's going to scream at you before the judgment seat. Your conscience is going to kick in and it's going to make known. And those things you're not aware of even now when the light comes upon you, you'll see how you were pushing through to do things that were wrong when you're before the judgment seat. Let's look at verse 16 now. So, our thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Summing it up, your ignorance is not a declaration of innocence, primarily because you're not ignorant. So what you know of right and wrong is enough of a basis for God to judge everyone. And he will bring out, now he says, the secrets or the hidden things. All of it's going to come out. And if you don't know the law of God set down in Scripture... You know the law that God has set down in your own life, and he's going to judge you by that, and you will be guilty. And the one who's going to be conducting this judgment is Jesus Christ. 
He's the one all of you are going to have to stand before one day. Actually, Peter says that when Peter is preaching to Cornelius, Peter's conclusion is the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he's the one who's going to judge all men. And when Paul is preaching to the men in Athens, and he preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ, again, his conclusion is that they are going to be judged by this one in the last days. And here's the interesting here. Paul says that this message, that judgment will take place, and you'll be under condemnation by it, through Jesus Christ, Paul says, is a part of his gospel. It's a part of his gospel. In other words, the message of judgment is a part of the message of the good news. Actually, there's no good news without the bad news. There's no need of the Savior unless there is destruction and ruin without the Savior. Here's something encouraging for us as believers. We who have put our faith in Jesus Christ as the one who has suffered and died for our sins, we will one day stand before him in judgment, but the one who will be judging us is also the one who came and died in our place and is our Savior. How encouraging for us. And that's why it's the gospel. The gospel says the one who you have to account for, for all your sins and for all your actions, the one you have to come before as judge, has come before your sins already once before and died in your place. You can be forgiven and you can be cleansed and you can meet that judge as your Savior, as your Savior in the end and not as your judge alone. If you would choose and receive him now. Let's look at some principles very quickly. We've just got five of them, but I'm not going to elaborate on them much. So let's look at them here. From all these things that we've just considered that Paul wrote, the first one is this. God's law is the basis upon which he will judge all people. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or how you're raised. Everyone knows something of God's law. Everyone, therefore, is accountable. There can be no plea of ignorance. What you know that you shouldn't have done and you've done, what you know that you, you should do and you didn't do, all of that that you know, regardless of what you know of the Ten Commandments or the Bible, all that's going to come back and bite you someday. All individuals know something of God. All individuals know something of God's grace and goodness. All individuals know something of God's law. And all individuals have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. That's what Paul's saying. Therefore, all of us justly deserve God's punishment against sin. And these verses that we're reading now is leading up to prove a point that Paul is going to drive down completely in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. It's this. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. So, God's law is the basis upon which he will judge all people. Here's the second thing. Sin is a betrayal of your own basic humanity. Sin is a betrayal of your own basic humanity. We were encoded in our natures with this moral law and when we sin, we go against our own natures. Sin is an activity of the self-disassembly of our own souls. It is a destruction of our very being and nature and what we were created for. Your conscience is telling you that. Your conscience is telling you what is consistent with what you are. Sin is not consistent with what God made you to be. Here's a third thing, and this is more important. This sin that is against our own nature also mars us before God. A God who wants to see us righteous before him. So for the sake of our humanity, we need to deal with sin. But 
also more so for the sake of God's righteous, loving desires for us. We need our sins to be taken away. We need to be made right with God, and that's what the gospel accomplishes for us. Here's the fourth thing. The gospel and our mission to take it to others, therefore requires that we take the law with us. The gospel, our mission to bring people to Jesus Christ, requires that in bringing that mission, that gospel to people and fulfilling it, we have to bring the law with us. John Stott quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he was in prison on this point. While he was in Hitler's prison, Bonhoeffer wrote this in his journal. Quote, I don't think it is Christian to want to get to the New Testament too soon or too directly, in quote. And then Stott explains, until the law has done its work of exposing and condemning our sin, we are not ready to hear the gospel of justification. Again, this is important because people have guilt. The people in your community, your neighbor, your friends, they have guilt and it's real guilt. Their consciences are bringing them under condemnation. There's false guilt as well. And that's at play as well. And that can scream oftentimes louder than real guilt. But people have real guilt. They also have false guilt. And the only way to cure both is to bring them to the depth of their accountability before God. It's to bring them to see the reality of their sin at a way they cannot see it or they might not see it all by themselves. And the Holy Spirit is cooperating with us in this task. It's to bring them to understand the depth of their sin and their accountability before God and the darkness of their own hearts and the justice of their complete condemnation before God. It's only in that way that you can, in a sense, plunge them into the provision that God has made for them and as a result extinguish false guilt and real guilt. One wonderful telling below. One wonderful telling outpouring of a cleansing and washing that comes through Jesus Christ alone. You have to bring people before these things. You have to bring them before their law. We try to share the gospel with individuals. The first thing we do is actually talk to them about God. We try to talk about who Jesus was. The reason we do that is we're just trying to turn the light on as bright as we can in the conversation with them and dialogue that we have with them. The, the brighter it is, the better you see yourself. But after we've talked about that for some time and let them wax eloquent and give us their views and we've shared some additional points of understanding for them, we ask them about their sin. You consider yourself a sinner. How do you know you're a sinner? What do you do that really brings you under conviction? And then we add to that added light that God gives us from the word. But what are we doing? We're wanting to bring them under the intensity and knowledge of their sin and we want to explain to them that it's so great and it's so profound that it's, it's not just that they're not sinners and it's not that they're little sinners and it's not that they're ignorant little sinners. Sin has brought them under God's condemnation justly. It's put them in such a dark situation, such a dire situation. If God wasn't being good to them and God wasn't restraining the impulses within them, they'd explode in an eruption of evil. But God has loved them and God has come and God has sought to deliver them through Jesus Christ and there's no way they're going to be able to do it by their own good works. Your hands are stained with sin and you're going to try to wash and wipe away the sin in your life. You're just going to spread the stain. You can't even see how deep is your sin, but God who knows all things sees the core of your being and he can reach down and pluck it out of your heart and deliver you and save you if you trust in him. We have to bring them to these things. We have to help them understand these things. Here's the fifth thing, just by way of conclusion here. The law that is in each person, that moral nature that's in each person, 
is on the side of the gospel. It's a part of the gospel. That knowledge that people have that they do things that are wrong, and, and the Bible says the Spirit of God is actually cooperating with that. God has made man with that nature, but then applied to that nature, the Bible says the Holy Spirit works to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment, that they're sinners, that they lack the righteousness they need, that God requires, and that as a result, they're going to face judgment and The law is on the side of the gospel. Paul says it's a tutor that's used to bring people to Jesus Christ. To be a human being as God made you to be. To be with God who made you and be right before him. We need the gospel of Jesus. And there is no other answer. And we have it. We have it. We're going to celebrate it in just a moment. This table before us. God's answer one who came and bore our sins and our place. Let's bow our heads. These things that we believe can touch our hearts, but Lord, first they must, they must sweep over our minds. We must understand them. There must be some acquainting ourselves with these truths, some awakening of our mind to these things. And then, then with it, oh God, there must be a stirring of the of the heart and the volition of an individual to see these things and to want to be free from them and want to be cleansed. and Oh God, in it, there has to be a forsaking, a turning from every impulse of self-justification, how futile that is and how empty that is. It will not stand before the judge. But oh, to know that this judge would be our Savior. That he would descend, and he has descended from the place of judgment to the very place of prosecution. There he stepped into our life and our sins and bore them for us and bore the weight of his own judgment that we might be set free, forgiven, made right before him. For our sakes, God, your own heart moved you to this. We don't understand it. We can't comprehend it. But you've loved us. And you've loved us to the end. We praise you for that. Lord, help us to be thinking and knowing these things. Help us to set our minds upon them so that you would use these truths by your Spirit to stir our wills to draw in tight to you. And to also be unafraid when we bring these truths before others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.